morning, everybody. This morning, we will be turning to 1 Corinthians in chapter 11. This morning, we're going to talk about communion, and we teach it because Paul's writing to the Corinthian church about it. And the reason that he's writing to the Corinthian church about it is because there's some confusion about its purpose and how it's to be conducted. Now, I like this because next Wednesday I have the opportunity to teach at my home church in Parkland Chapel in Farmington, and I'm teaching from Psalm 106. And the whole chapter in Psalm 106 is about giving thanks to the Lord for His mercy endures forever. Now, that might not mean a whole lot to you when you think about uh, the Lord's Supper, but in some of the higher churches, they actually call communion the taking of the Eucharist. And it, it's a fancy word, but the word Eucharist means to give thanks. And so communion is just that. It's giving thanks, for He is good, and His mercy endures forever. How do we know about God's mercy? Well, the word mercy means not giving us what we do deserve. Does that make sense? Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. That's his love and his payment for sin that turns away God's wrath that we do deserve. And God's mercy is in the same way but different. It is him not giving us, not meeting out the punishment that we do deserve. Before I came to Christ, before I was covered in his blood, my sins separated me from God. And because of that, I deserved to be punished. Not just by consequences, but by death. Sin, when it conceives and becomes full grown, James says, brings forth death. Now there are some sins that will kill us, literally, physically. But there is a sin that leads to spiritual death, and that is the sins that we commit against God. And so, in His mercy, not giving us what we deserve, He provided this spotless Lamb, Jesus Christ, provided for us, no blemishes, no problems, perfect in every way, slaughtered, his body broken, and his blood poured out so that that blood could be washed over us, no longer just covering our sins, but cleansing us of all unrighteousness. So the table of the Lord that we come into is not a table where we just come in and have food. But it's a table that if we partake of it, gives us life. Because our sins, the wages of sin, Romans 6.23, the wages, what we earn from sinning against God is death. Just as gruesome and as troublesome as you can think of, brutal death. But the gift of God, Romans 6.23 also says, is everlasting life. And that life cannot come unless we come to God through Jesus Christ, and have his blood applied to our life. That blood being poured out. And so in the Old Testament, if someone had sinned, they would literally have to take an animal that they have raised from birth, put a little rain on it, and take it up to the temple and say, I've sinned in this specific way. I'm repenting of that sin. In order to provide redemption for that sin, here I have this animal. And they would slaughter the animal. And the priest would prepare it, and certain parts of it would be burned. And so we are kind of separated from that, right? 
we see our sins, we repent of them, and there's really not a whole lot of action other than just confessing it to the Lord, repenting, asking Him to change us, and trusting by faith that His death on the cross was good enough to forgive me of my sins. That's the life of faith that we walk by. But in the days of the Old Testament, they knew very closely what kind of cost there was involved in their sins. They knew that they were going to have to lose a piece of livestock that they could have eaten or used for other things. They could have sold it and gained money. So there was cost involved for their forgiveness. And Leviticus in the Old Testament says, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. In the blood was the life. They weren't even to eat an animal with the blood still in it because in the blood it was supposed to be hallowed. It had life. And you and I know that if we don't have blood in our systems, we can't live. It's, It's essential to our daily life. And so Jesus was that payment that turns away God's wrath. In him, the Father was well pleased. And so when we come to God the Father through that act of sacrifice, then we no longer have God's wrath upon us, but we have his blessing. And so this morning, that's kind of the backdrop. They are practicing what we would call the Lord's Supper, communion. And the way that it began in the early church is they would, as time went on, they would celebrate together. They would get together as a church, not necessarily even on a Sunday morning, and they would have a common meal, and everyone would bring food. Now, the common meal was what we would call a potluck. And I was listening to a guy this morning, and he said, you know, I'm not big on the the phrase luck because I don't believe in it. God's in control of everything. And he said, it's more like a a common meal where every, it's kind of like those books, Choose by Number, Multiple Choice Meals. Everybody brings a, a bunch of food, and you can eat whatever you want. But after that, they would take communion as basically a family of God. They would sit down, they would break bread together, but as a part of that, this love feast where they would share in one another's goods, they would also have communion. And, and uh, the church in Farmington actually has an agape fest every year, or feast, at the time of uh, Easter on Good Friday, and they would get together and celebrate the Lord's death, and they would have a meal, and they would have communion. And as, as we, we do that, we, we celebrate that. But here's what was going on in the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17, he's just given them instruction on roles in the church as far as just males and females. But then he also goes as far as to deal with a little bit of confusion they were having concerning the Lord's Supper. So in verse 17, he says, In giving these instructions, I do not praise you. Since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. He's saying when you come together as a church, not just on Sundays, but every time you guys get together as a group, you don't come together and and it's good. Like there's some problems going on. And he talked about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He said that there are divisions among you. And so here he's going to get more specific and he's going to get to the heart of the reason that they have divisions among them. Verse 18, he says, for first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. He says, there are differing opinions amongst you about Scripture and about God's plan for Christians, those who follow Jesus. He says, and you know what? It must be so. 
there should be divisions, certain divisions in the church so that those who are approved and have been tested and are found to be in the faith would be made known and those who are not will also be made known. It's like bringing oil and water together. In every church assembly, even one as small as ours, there are those there who claim to be Christian and are not. And the Lord is always trying to pinpoint where there are those, there are sheep and there are wolves. And he doesn't tear them out. In his grace, he allows them to be together so that when they fellowship together, you can tell the difference between those who follow the Lord and those who don't. If you've ever taken a a glass and you've poured in some oil and some water, they can coexist in the glass, but they never get together. They separate naturally. they're, They're two different objects They fight one another. That's why we wax our vehicles. There's oils in there to keep the water from the surface of that vehicle so that it won't rust, so that it won't show water spots or whatever. And so what Paul's saying here is there are divisions among you, and these divisions must be so because there are some that are among you that are not of the Lord, and they need to know that. They need to recognize that. And as leaders of the church, the leaders are to be able to watch over the flock and to see those divisions and to see those who are of the faith and those that need prayed for salvation. And so he says that there are those divisions and they must be so. Verse 20, therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? He's at a loss for words. And that's doing something with Paul. Well, obviously, we've read some of his letters. They get really long. It's like, I don't even know what to tell you. You're missing the point of the Lord's Supper. And he's very heavy-handed in this. He's correcting them. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. I'm not, I can't even give thanks for what's going on in the midst of your group. He's correcting them. He's being very strong-handed. He's disappointed. If you've ever been disappointed in someone, you just want to tell them, like, what are you doing? And he does this because he loves them. He wants to instruct them. And what we're going to notice is that he doesn't just stop by saying, you're doing it all wrong, and then walk away. Sometimes that's what happens. We, we rebuke somebody or someone rebukes us, but they don't tell us how to correct it. And so Paul doesn't leave them at, you're doing it wrong, see ya. He says, here's how it was originally done. So he takes them back to the Lord's Supper when Jesus did it. So in verse 23, he says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant, the new promise, and this promise is sealed with my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And he says, For as often as you eat this bread... And drink this cup, what you're doing is you're proclaiming the Lord's death till he comes, till he returns. And so you're you're constantly remembering his mercy. So look at the contrast here. We have this first section 
verse 17 through verse 22, where he talks about how they're conducting themselves in the Lord's Supper when they get together. And then he gives, but here's how Jesus did it. And this is how it was observed the first time. And what you'll notice is that in the first, in the Corinthians, nobody cared about anyone else but themselves. Now, we often see this in children, and we're quick to go, you don't care about anybody but yourself. Life's not about you. That's what we're teaching Lucy. Life is not about you. It's about Jesus. But what this church was doing as adults is they were having the same problems. They they were making it all about them, not as a church whole, but as individuals. There were some among them that didn't have much money. And so when they came to the potluck, they didn't bring lobster and steak. They brought what they could bring, maybe some bread, loaf of bread, bag of chips. It's what we do. But then there were some that had more means. And so they brought steak and shrimp. I'm just giving examples. But they would bring something that they were normally used to eating. So that's no problem. Everybody brings what they have to bring to the table. It's not about what you bring. It's just that each person has the ability to contribute. But here's what they would do. In that culture, in pagan rituals where they would worship idols, they would come into these feasts, and those that brought a lot, they would eat a lot, and they would get to go first. And those that didn't have much, they culturally knew that as respect for those who were richer, they would wait. And by the time they got there, there was hardly anything for them to eat. So rather than everyone getting a, an equal portion or what they needed to be able to be filled, what they got was a whole group that brought in a bunch of food and they would go and get their own food and eat it and there wouldn't be enough for everybody else. And then there was a group that was left hungry. And this is not what the body of Christ is about. It's, it's not about coming in and thinking about yourself. It's about what he says there in verse, uh, oh, let's see. Sorry, I lost it. In, in the first chapter, first part of this chapter, he was talking about giving preference to one another. Verse 24 of chapter 10, he had already laid down this principle. He says, let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. If we will do that, if we'll give preference to others, what you'll find out is, you won't, be take, you won't be worried about yourself. You'll giving, be giving preference to someone else. And more likely, someone's going to be led by the Lord to give preference to you. Your needs are met. Just like in marriage, if I will stop thinking about me and serve my wife, naturally, whether she does or not, I'm going to be blessed because I'm going to serve her. But usually, if you love someone out of the abundance of that, they're just like, they want to do stuff for you as a general reaction. You know, it's the love of Christ that compels us to love others. It's not because we love Christ. It's because he first loved us. And so in the fellowship meal, in the Lord's Supper, there ought to be one of those giving preference for others because this is what Jesus set down in his first Lord's Supper. He said he, he broke the bread so that he could pass it out to everyone. Did you ever notice that at the Lord's Supper or at the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus stopped before the supper. He broke the bread and he gave thanks to the Father. And after doing that, he handed it out. But you never get anything about him getting to eat. It never once talks about them feeding him. He was the one doing the feeding. So if there's anything provided in a meal, it was given by him. 
the Father of lights. He gives all good gifts, James says. But as he gives it and we spread it, we hand it out and we bless others, what we'll find is that our food will be to do the will of the Father, just like Jesus was. So he instructs them. He says, this, this Lord's Supper, he says, some of you aren't getting anything to eat and the others of you, there were people in this setting being glutted, eating so much that they were throwing up and drinking so much that they were drunk. So there's the question. Was the wine that they drank in the New Testament early on, was it actually wine or was it grape juice? I'm going to say that if you got drunk on it, it was real wine. And he says, this thing ought not to be so. You ought not to be drunk. There ought to, there's plenty for everyone. And so he gives this principle and he teaches, give preference to one another. So he says, what shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? Absolutely not. But he says this is supposed to be the result of taking the Lord's Supper. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're proclaiming to the, all those that watch you that the Lord's death happened and you proclaim that until he returns. You're proclaiming this reality in your life that Jesus died for your sins. You're remembering his mercy. And I say this because this that they took originally, they took it on the night of Passover. And in the Jewish calendar, the night of Passover was something that they did every year. And the first time that they did the Jewish Passover was actually in Egypt. As they were in the land of slavery, God had taken them there. They'd been there for years. The Pharaoh that brought them in and wanted to bless them because of Joseph, he was there and and he was like, we want you to live here because there was a famine going on. But as time passed and the kings died and another one would be raised up, they forgot why the Jews were there in the first place, the Israelites. And so they started to make them their slaves. They started to use them for forced labor. And as their cries went up to the Lord, they said, Lord, deliver us. He heard their cries. He heard their affliction. And he acted. And he sent a deliverer, Moses. Moses was out in the desert. The Lord spoke to him through a burning bush that was not consumed. And he said, remove your sandals because you're standing on holy ground. And then from that point on, God gave this plan of redemption, this plan of rescue to Moses and sent Moses back to where he was born in Egypt. He sent him there to deliver his people out of the land of slavery and bondage and sin. And he did this and he did all the plagues. And on the last plague, he said, I'm going to plague the Egyptians. Anyone who does not come and do as I tell them, their firstborn is going to be killed by the angel of death. But to you who know me, I want you to take a lamb, a spotless lamb. I want you to kill that lamb. I want you to eat it. Eat the, eat the meat because you're going to need energy. We're getting ready to leave. You're not going to have any meat. And I want you to cook some bread. Not just any bread, though. I don't want you to put any leaven in it because leaven was a picture of sin. I want you to prepare yourselves to be delivered. But here's the other thing. You don't put leaven in it because it takes time for the leaven to make the, the dough rise. And you don't have time. I'm going to deliver you tonight. And so what I want you to do is that lamb, I want you to drain the blood. And I want you to take it. And I want you to brush it over the, the doorposts of your homes. And everyone who has the blood covering their home, their firstborn will be spared. 
They had to all, do all this by faith. Imagine. So they're, they're killing this animal, and they're taking the blood and smeared it on their house. Gross, right? But all this was to be a picture of how Jesus one day would be that Passover lamb, prepared, and we would be covered in his blood, and then we would be delivered from sin and bondage by this deliverer. So Moses took them out of the land. And as he took them out of the land, he didn't take them by way of the land of the Philistines and go around the Red Sea. He took them directly to the Red Sea because he knew they weren't ready for battle. They were going to have to battle the Philistines. And so as they came out of the land and they approached the Red Sea, they're like, well, what are we going to do now? We're hemmed in. And the Lord protected them by a pillar of cloud. The Egyptians couldn't see them. But as they were racing up on the Israelites, the Israelites go, Moses, what did you do? Did you deliver us out here so that we would be consumed and killed by the Egyptians? We were better off being slaves. And he said, watch and see the deliverance of the Lord. And the Lord told him, raise up your staff. So he did. And when he did, the Red Sea parted. And he parted it with a wind and made the land dry underneath. So they passed through the waters of baptism of the Red Sea. Well, that same water that they passed through, the Egyptians followed them in. They're like, we're going to get them, we're going to bring them back, and they're going to be our slaves again. And as they got to the other side, the last one stepped up. The chariots were underneath. The Lord started to cause all kinds of problems on the Egyptians. He actually even, I just read it this week, he removed the wheels from their chariots. So as they're hard driving underneath this Red Sea that's miraculously parted, their chariots start to mess up. And the Lord basically, he delivered them from their enemies. And then when the Israelites were out from under the sea, the Lord goes, okay. And he let go. And all the water went, and drowned the Egyptians. You see, the Lord delivers his own. And so all of that happened, and they get to the other side, and they forgot. And they saw the land, of, uh, and, and they saw all the problems, and they saw that they were in the middle of the desert, and the Lord wanted them to trust him, and they started complaining. They forgot the mercies of the Lord. They forgot that he had already miraculously delivered them. If God delivered them to the spot they were in, he was going to take them from it if he needed to. If God brings you to it in your life, he will bring you through it. But they started to grumble. They started to complain. And we have the book of Numbers where 40 years they wandered in the wilderness because they forgot the mercies of the Lord. They did not Eucharist. They did not give thanks. And so he's talking to these people about the Lord's Supper and how it's a picture of God's delivering them from the power of sin and death. And he's saying, if you will give thanks for what God has done, you won't have a problem sharing your food. You won't treat each other like you're treating each other. You'll give preference to one another. So he's talking about this, and in verse 27 he says, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. He's not saying whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup and is unworthy of it, because everyone's unworthy of the mercy of God. Everyone. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one deserves God to save them. And if you think anybody does, or if you think you do, you need to check yourself before you wreck yourself. Because God doesn't forgive those who deserve it. He forgives people who are sinners, who have fallen short, who deserve death. 
We need a Savior because we're sinners. And so he says that, and he says, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. In other words, they were taking it in an unworthy manner. It's not that they were unworthy, they all were, but they were taking it in an unworthy fashion. He says, but let a man examine himself. Communion is a time where we can remember what God has done for us, and we can ask the question, am I living a life that's worthy of the sacrifice that's provided me salvation? Am I living in a manner that honors what God has done for me? Am I truly giving thanks with my lifestyle? He says, let someone examine themselves, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats, verse 29, and drinks in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Now, there are some groups that believe that when you eat the bread and you drink the cup, that it becomes the Lord's body. It's the fancy word is transubstantiation. It, it turns in the physical body and the physical blood. I have a problem with this. Because if that's the case, then when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he had two bodies. They were eating one and the other one was handing it out. So that doesn't make any sense. It must have been symbolic of what he was getting ready to do, to give his life and to pour out his blood for the forgiveness and the remission of sins. So as we take it, we're not, it's not about that. It's just this is a way, a peace that we do so and remember physically with something in our hand that God physically died, that his blood was literally poured out. You look at a grape, you don't think about the process of what it takes to make grape juice or even wine. What happens for a grape to become that juice that you drink? It gets crushed. In Isaiah 53, it says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, that's how we're healed. And so if that is the case, and that blood that was poured out, he had to be crushed first. And it pleased the Lord to crush him to forgive us. So he says, let a man examine himself. And once he's examined himself, let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. He says in verse 30, for this reason, many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. That word for sleep is many have died. When we don't examine ourselves and we take the Lord's Supper unworthily, God sometimes allows physical affliction to buffet us or to discipline us, to chastise us so that we will stop in that, in that physical affliction and go, maybe I'm not where I need to be. Maybe God's allowed this so I'll start to really recognize where I'm at spiritually. Now, not all sickness is caused by sin in someone's life. So don't fall into the trap to see if somebody's in sin. Well, it's obviously because they're, they're sinning against God. But it says here that there were those in the Corinthian church who were sick and weak because they were taking the bread and the blood and they were taking it unworthily. They weren't stopping to examine their lives. Many people that come to church... They take this opportunity when the, when the communion is offered and they say, well, I'll just back away from the table. 
I haven't really examined myself, so I won't take it. But that's not what God is telling us through the pen of Paul here. It's time of examination. For those who recognize when they are offered the Lord's table, you know what? I'm not really a Christian. I've never gotten saved. I can't eat of this. I'm coming to the table unworthily. God gives us John chapter 3, verse 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. You have the opportunity to get saved. And then take, eat. This is his body. This is his blood. We can remember what he's done. We can take it joyfully, remembering his mercy. But then there's the other side for the believer who starts to examine himself or herself and realize, hey, I'm living in sin right now. I'm unrepentant. I, I can't take this right now. I'm, I'm not even walking in honesty with God. He gives us 1 John 1, 9. Turn there with me. 1 John 1, 9. Start in verse 5, he says, This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And if we say that we have fellowship with him, but we walk in darkness, then we lie and we don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. He says in verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, then really we're deceiving ourselves and the truth isn't in us. If you're not convicted of the sin that's in your life, then the truth isn't in you. Maybe you need to get saved. But then he says, if we confess, that's to take what God has said is true, to repeat it back to him, Lord, I'm a sinner and I need forgiveness of this specific sin that I'm living in, then what he promises He says he is faithful and he is just. He's justified to forgive us of our sins and as a result of that, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He wipes our slate clean. He says if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So he's putting it black and white there, right? If we say we have no sin, then we're a liar and the truth's not in us. But if we have sinned, we have an advocate. He's our lawyer, and he is able not only to free us of the charges, but he takes and he pays for any of the things that we've done wrong by his blood. And so this is an opportunity to examine ourselves and say, I'm living in sin. Lord, this is the way I need to be forgiven. Change me. And then he wipes our slate clean. So he says, examine yourselves. For if we would judge ourselves, verse 31, we would not be judged. This is not an eternal judgment. This is a judgment for us to look at ourselves so that we will not experience discipline. He's correcting us. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Let me tell you this. If you have continually been living in sin and you've never experienced the discipline or the correction of God, you are probably not a child of God because Hebrews teaches us that the Lord disciplines those that he loves. If you're not receiving discipline from your heavenly father, you're not his because he loves us enough to discipline us. It's how he shows us that he cares. 
he says, when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord for this reason, that we may not be condemned with the world, that we won't experience eternal separation from him. Therefore, verse 33, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Give preference to one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. If you're just coming together to eat food, you can do that at your house. You don't, this is the time to spend time with the Lord. But if it's all about food for you and you're missing the point of, eat at home. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. You know, uh, there are times where we get together for fellowships. If you're going to show up to the thing and you're starving, you're going to push people out of the line because you're so hungry, why don't you eat a little snack before you come so you don't sin against your brother? That's what he's saying, a real practical thing. He says, and the rest, because he's not basically laying it all out, the rest I will set in order when I come. So he stops and he says, there are other things we could talk about and I can get more specific, but maybe we should have that in a face-to-face conversation. And so all of this is instruction on communion. So as I was preparing this morning and I was sitting here and had all my chores done, I was like, you know, maybe we should put the rubber to the road and we should have communion. So this morning I'm going to ask Mr. Persley, And Jesse, if you would go back and get the elements, we're going to take communion. And as with this as the backdrop, what I want to encourage you to do is examine yourselves. Where are you at right now? How's your walk with the Lord? This is not meant to condemn anybody. This is an opportunity to come back to what reality is. Not what you profess to be, not what you feel like you measure up as, but to examine ourselves, to qualify ourselves And to say, where am I at? Paul says, I want to live a life so as not to disqualify myself for the work of the ministry. Paul says, for those of us who believe, if we take the Lord's cup and the Lord's bread and we eat it unworthily, we can disqualify ourselves. And sometimes it seems that even he's teaching that the Lord takes people out of this world, takes them home so that they will not be a disgrace to the name of the Lord. And so the Lord says, Check yourself. Are you actually walking in the faith or not? And then, once you've done your business with the Lord, take the bread, take the cup with thanksgiving, remembering all that He's done for you. The mercies of the Lord. Not giving you what you deserve. And what you'll find is as you do that correctly, you'll experience joy and peace. You'll find your worth in who He is. And so this morning we're going to do things a little differently. Uh, Steve, Stephen Persley III is going to play a song for us. And the men are going to stand up here. They're going to hold the elements. Come up and get them. I want you to spend time with the Lord. Pray. Deal with the things we talked about this morning. And then take communion. And then after that, we'll close with the song.